And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Today's episode is really about improving you, you the listener, because you're going to gain a couple of different things when you're finished with this episode. First of all, you're going to become a more polite individual because you're going to understand the point of politeness in modern day society. On top of that, actually because of that, it will improve your social standing. That is the guarantee Uh, Actually, it's probably not a guarantee. I probably shouldn't put words in William Hansen's mouth. But I think it's a guarantee because the book is so well written. The Bluffer's Guide to Etiquette is the book that I'm talking about. And William Hansen is the author. And on top of that, he is also the UK's most prominent manners, etiquette, and social decorum expert. He's on the show today. I'm very excited about that. But before we get to William, I have a confession to make. While researching this episode, of course, I read William's book. Now, that in in and of itself is life-changing. However, there's one more additional detail that I wish to share, and that is I got into a show called Downton Abbey because as far as modern television goes, that's the closest thing we have to the types of manners uh, that people think about when they think of British society. Now, I do understand that this was in the 19-teens, right before World War I, but I just wanted to get a sense of what people thought when they thought of the high point of manners. What I didn't expect was to be so emotionally invested in this show, I don't even know where to begin. Actually, I do know where to begin. It's that jerk Thomas, who's a footman, who's always scheming and plotting and undermining everyone, and he works with this maid, O'Brien, who's a jerk. And, and these two are, they're always after people and they're, they're, they're trying to get people in trouble and nothing bad ever happens to these idiotic duo, uh, no matter how much they're after the good guys like Mr. Bates, who is this lovable knight in shining armor, who's just trying to do the right thing, a kind of guy you aspire to be. They're after him and nothing bad ever really happens to these two jerks. I don't get it. Then there's Mrs. Patsmore, who's the the cook, and she's always berating Daisy, who's this lovable but kind of airheaded, you know, assistant cook. I don't know what they call them. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of very official titles. I don't know them all, but it's you know it's uh, the servants, and then there's the upper class, and the the friction between the two, and yet how they live together in the slice of life society in the 1920s. I had no idea that I would be so invested in this show, and yet I love it. Um, I feel like I've gone on a rant for too long, but that's my confession. I needed to get that off my chest. I love Downton Abbey. So, um, without further ado, let's talk to William Hansen. Mr. Hansen, can I call you William? Do you like Willie? You seem more like a William kind of guy. I'm a William sort of guy. Let's, Let's leave Willie out of this. Okay, all right. So you are UK's top etiquette expert um is that a self in uh, self-induced title or is that something that was given to you 
No, no. I mean, I, I'm just an etiquette coach. That's all I do. Uh, I'm very fortunate that people consider me to be one of the first voices that they will go to. Well, I don't know if you know this, but uh, one of my nicknames here in the States is the Funk Lord. And that doesn't exactly translate to a title in British, but I am technically a lord. So I do want to just make that clear at the get-go. Okay, excellent. Uh, well, I'm glad I'm amongst company. <laughs> right. So now let's talk about the difference between manners and etiquette, because I think there's subtle differences semantically. Yes, they're certainly bedfellows, etiquette and manners, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Manners are the guiding principles of interaction and uh, dealing with other people there to respect one another, to put yourself second and to put people at ease. How we do that nine times out of ten is by using the specific rules, the etiquettes. So sometimes actually what the rule book says or what I say isn't correct because of a different circumstance. But generally we can use etiquette to help make things easier. Now that is of course in our lovely ideal world where people know the etiquette. No, that's that's true. It's funny because etiquette, those are the rules, and that's kind of, it's almost the quirky nature of these things throughout history, which we'll get to, which kind of brought my fascination, the spotlight of my brain onto these things, because I'm a fan of rules. I do like rules. I think they're necessary. Obviously, we can't go around murdering people. There needs to be rules in place for that. We're not talking about those kind of rules. We're talking about rules of decorum in a social setting, but rules are rules, William. That's what I'm saying. I like rules, mm-hmm. but... I don't like a hassle. And I think some of these things, when, when you really start to do them, they kind of become a hassle when you get into the, the more in-depth social etiquette. Yes, exactly. Rules, rules are easy. Boundaries uh, as well. We all, as humans, as children, of course, we are given boundaries. And most children find it easy when they know the boundaries. And, and the same extends to adulthood as well. Knowing what is expected of you actually makes things a lot easier. For example, if you know how to eat peas or petit pois and you are on a date, for example, you're not going to panic about how to eat peas or petit pois. You're going to focus on building a connection with the person sitting opposite you, which ultimately is, is what you're there to do. No, that's true. And I've made it, you know, all of my listeners will know that um, I've set, I have a reputation of knowing exactly what to do with petit pois. So that is not even an issue for me. I just want to make that clear. Um now, manners, you know, manners are the line between civility and complete primal urges. Now, we're going to get to that in a second. But in your book, this is a fantastic book, by the way. Uh, it's called The Bluffer's Guide to Etiquette, which we'll get to the bluffer's part in a second. I do like that very much um, because it immediately implies that no one belongs, that no one has, has a right to do what you're telling them to do in the book by social <laughs> standing, uh, which is probably true. But it's a great book. We've got to take issue with you, sir. As we stay mm-hmm. in the States, i got some beef with you. You blast America. Let me see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times <laughs> at the very least because I highlighted them all. Uh, we can go down the list if you want. But what, what's your problem with what's, what's with us? What, what, what's going on? No, now look, don't take it so personally, Daniel. Uh, America is, is a fantastic country. I holiday regularly in America. Certainly when I'm running out of material for columns and books, I, I pop over. <laughs> and then that's that. I caught that. <laughs> I caught that. No, look, I, I, I love America. I've got American uh, mm. family mm-hmm. uh, by marriage. Mm. Um, and 
it, you know, America is, is is very is a very good country by and large. I mean, you're having a, a bit of a blip at the moment, but uh, other than that, you're you're quite good. So no, look, I don't. The Brit I send the British up in the book as well, so I thought mm -hmm. I might as well send the Americans up as well. Yeah, I mean, it's if you look at the final scoreboard, I think it's definitely in uh, in Britain's favor. But but all right, I'll, I'll take that. Uh, so now let's let's talk about let's talk about the book. Let's get into that. Um, so you you kind of make the distinction between you and non you. What is, what yes. is that? Uh, obviously, you and I are both yous. Uh, we've made that clear from the get go. I know what you obviously. mean. Um, but can you can you explain that to the listeners? Yes. Yeah, so you and and it's the letter you and non you uh, mm -hmm. was a concept that was sort of popularized by the author and and socialite Nancy Mitford back in here in Britain in, in the 1950s, but it was actually a, an academic uh, linguist called Professor Alan S.C. Ross who coined the phrases in the early 50s. And he basically had realized that you could tell who was upper class, who was you, and who was not upper class, non-you, by their choice of words. Yes, accent played a part in that, but actually it, it was the choice of words so whether you called it a lavatory as opposed to a toilet lavatory being upmarket being you toilet being mm. downmarket non-you if you put a napkin on your lap which was correct uh, in, in his in his eyes or whether you put a serviette on your your lap so so in the book we we very briefly touch upon this i'm actually i've just today this morning finished making a uh, documentary for BBC Radio 4 on the subject that will be out in the summer. That's Wow, that's apropos. So uh, when you get that, put a link to it, and I'm happy to um, to promote that on the website, on, on your bio page. We'll Excellent. Right uh, so now let's talk about, since we're talking about the letter U, let's move over. Let's add a Y and an O, a yo to that. Let's talk about you, William. Um, how did you get into manners? What is it about it that, that kind of made you jump to the high rank so quickly? Well, it was my my maternal grandmother, who sadly died last year, who probably was instrumental in, in all of this. Obviously, my parents brought me up fairly traditionally. Let's not forget them. Uh, they often get cross when I do. But uh, they they brought me up fairly traditionally, told me, you know, not not just told me, but, you know, forced me to write thank you letters to people and and always say please may I leave the table and thank you very much i've had a lovely time when i went round uh, to to sort of play or to stay at friends houses and then granny gave me a book of etiquette when i was 12 because i was and this will be hard to believe daniel i know uh, mm -hmm. i was quite a precocious child what? and she i know i know and she thought uh, probably would appeal i think she was also given a, a book of etiquette when she was young and probably wish to keep the tradition alive and so I, I got this book and I'll be perfectly honest with you didn't really want to read it uh, but she stays with us or used to stay with us at Christmas every year and so she would say things like well you know have you read the bit about asparagus yet have you read the bit about how to address a bishop during Lent and I hadn't so I got on with it and it was quite funny actually and very interesting and it appealed to my precocity and so I bought a few more etiquette books and uh one thing led to another, and here I am today. You know, it's kind of interesting that you that you say that because you had a push. I'm sorry to hear about your grandmother, by the way. I was very close to my grandmother as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's kind of funny about that is she pushed you into or gave you a book about a topic that you weren't particularly interested in and kind of bugged you about it. And then you developed an interest that you've turned into a very successful career. Um, mm. Now, I, I didn't do, turn it into a successful career, but I remember my grandmother would always, she was a great cook. And so she would always, when I was a kid, I didn't like to wait for food. And so, like I specifically, I loved pizzas. And so mm. she would always take time to put stuff on it. And it always annoyed me. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> now, now that I'm older, I take the time to make delicious meals. And it's because of my grandmother. It's kind of funny how the things that annoy us when we're young, we kind of take on as we get older. So now, am I to take it to understand? I don't know if that's a correct sentence. But am I to understand that? So you were not born in, into royalty or without a title or anything like that? No, no title other than Mr. or Master, as of course it was when I was born. Sure, sure. Now, in 2012, you helped set a Guinness World Record. Now, I love world record holders on my show, but I'm not exactly 100% sure what you did. I don't know what a curtsy relay is, (laughs) but you were heavily involved. How does that work? Yeah, well, I wasn't sure what a curtsy relay was either until okay, someone came up with it, I'll be honest, Daniel. Okay. Uh, so I was approached by uh, London and Partners, who are the marketing arm for London, you know, that little known city mm-hmm. that has a marketing department. And they decided that ahead of the very busy summer that London had in 2012 with the Queen's Diamond Jubilee and the mm-hmm. uh, Olympics, that it would be a good idea to have a series of world record attempts, 19 of which happened in the UK, one of which happened in New York. And that was the one that I was involved in. And that was involved me flying over at whatever cost to New York and teaching 100 New York businessmen and women how to curtsy. And a curtsy (laughs) is the correct greeting when meeting a member of the royal family. Mm. It's traditionally only done by women, but sort of everyone was a token woman for our event. And uh, it's one foot behind the other, keeping the back straight, bowing the head slightly, hands by the side. And uh, I taught all these hundred people how to do it. And then we had a relay. So everyone curtsied one at a time. I had to verify that each curtsy was correct it wasn't some half-hearted attempt if it was they had to do it again and we managed to set the world record for the longest curtsy relay it wasn't breaking the world record because kel surprise that was not a record that existed sure. <laughs> so you but you helped you were a trailblazer a pioneer you helped this is a record now that can be broken and attempted to be broken because i'm sure it won't yes. be yes yes if you really want to you can have a go at, uh, at breaking that i think we did 400 and 490 curtsies in five minutes or something. That's not bad. It's a good number. It's enough for a world record, yeah. Mm. Now, I'm going to ask you that. I want an honest answer from you, William, okay? Yep. Did it kind of bother you that that took place in New York? No, not not at all. I can hear it in your voice. It didn't take place (laughs) anywhere on the Queen's land, so that didn't... I mean, not even in Canada, which was, I guess... I guess we were still... Well, Canada still has the queen on her money, so that would have been a little bit better. Well, yes. I mean, technically, Americans, whether they're from New York or elsewhere, don't actually have to curtsy to Her Majesty because it's not their monarch. Canadians do. So, so yes, if we're going to rip apart uh, my life achievement, then, uh, (laughs) yes, it doesn't doesn't really make sense. (laughs) Well, I I find it to be... uh, I I hold you in high esteem for doing that. World record holders are number one in my book, um, which has no merit anywhere except... 
for me. Um, but I do, I do respect it. Now let's get into let's get into manners. We've learned about you. You're clearly an expert. Uh, I want to talk about manners because what's kind of funny to me is that really the purpose of manners. There's a couple of fold uh, of the real purpose of manners and etiquette. I'm going to go through some of them, and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong or add. Uh, this really separates. It's a socioeconomic. It's it's to define the socioeconomic strata. I mean, this is separates the elite from the peasants because it has mm-hmm. to be taught, right? So you have these these rules, these very complex rules of etiquette. Some of them aren't that complex. Some are common sense, but they have to be taught to you. And for at the highest levels, you know, we're talking about the upper class. They're so complex that they require money for teachers, this is where guys like you come in, uh, that teach people these these very specific rules, uh, which inherently will separate the rich from the poor. You know, you got finishing schools, you have um, you know, all this kind of stuff. Mm. Is that the only reason, or are there other reasons as to why? Because that seems to me is the primary reason as to why these exist, to the level and intricacy that they do. I think there has always been, now and in the past, a fascination with the correct way of doing things. And if we were starting a human race up tomorrow, would we really add in rules as to, you know, how you hold your fork, what that says about you, or the correct way to curtsy, taking it back to curtsies, etc.? No, we probably wouldn't. But but Britain and Europe in particular, um, as well as America to a certain extent, but Britain in particular has this very long and rich history and heritage. And a lot of what we do is not just invented to irritate people. It is a nod to a past time. It can highlight how far we have come and how much we have progressed. But also there is actually a common sense that our ancestors have really, you know, they've developed and finessed it over time. And it's part of a, a civilised Society, And that is why we are humans and, and we are not chimpanzees, for example, and, and, and we are different from. I know we are related to chimpanzees, obviously, but, but we have a more advanced uh, way of, of dealing with, with things, concepts and beliefs. So there always has been a fascination and finishing schools don't really exist uh, per se as, as they used to do. But, but people like me in, in, in place of them have popped up. Well, you know, and I think that that's true because from from a social standpoint, these really create a group, like an in-group, you know, where everyone knows these customs. It's kind of like being part of like a secret society or something where you know who's in that group and it's designed to keep out the other. Um, but, but on a more, on a biological level, it's really, most etiquette is designed, especially, you know, we're going to talk about the history in a second, but when you start going back... Um, you, you, you know, you, you touched on this a second ago. It's designed for civility. Well, civility mm-hmm. is basically what, how human beings are supposed to act. But that every, almost every single rule in that goes against our primal urges, which are what make us into animals. Chimpanzees, you know, that's what separates chimpanzees from humans. But I think in some ways, you know, it is we, – we are supposed to have those, those primal urges – um, and I think some of them are healthy. Obviously, you can't, you know, run amok and do whatever you want, like if you're a caveman. But, mm. I mean, but is, aren't manners really designed to kind of hold off our animalistic nature? 
yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah, they are. I suppose in 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 a in a way, such as how we hold our knife at the dining table. We hold it in a way that shows that we are not using it as a weapon. We show that we are holding it because we're using it as an eating implement. So we have our index finger going down the knife, stopping where the blade and the handle meet, rather than holding it like a pencil, as some people do, or indeed holding it like it's our sword, because it's not. Years ago, it, it, actually, the, the, the knives used at table were not special table knives. They were daggers mm. that men would be using during the day to hunt and gather the beast that you were then eating. Uh, but you know when, and similarly, when the fork came in in the in the 18th century, the late 17th, early 18th century, you it became the etiquette that you would place your fork when resting, when eat, when resting in eating, over the knife, the blade of the knife, to show that you were not using the knife as a weapon and to show you were civilized. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I mean, it, it's this is just another purpose of manners. And and it seems to me, and I, and I mean no offense when I say this, but it you know, mm-hmm. and I understand why this exists, but it almost seems like rule, like the manners and etiquette are in place, and you basically do the opposite of what would come naturally to poor people, to the peasants. You know, this is probably more true way back when, but you know, because a lot of the rules in your book like don't show emotion. You know, anything that a commoner would find, you know, to be to be ecstatic about or show emotion about, you kind of say, ah, it's a bore. That's you know, that's very trivial. Um, was was that uh, that must have been very purposeful to keep the upper class to do the exact opposite, so you create like a yin and yang scenario? Yes, yes, to a certain extent, I I I, I understand and, and would agree with that. Okay, <laughs> thank you, William. Um, so now let's go into the history of this. How did manners first come into play? Uh, and let's really talk about modern manners because we can go back, mm. you know, way back to. The, before the Roman Empire, way BC. Let's talk about mod, the modern era. Yeah, so, I mean, etiquette as a concept, really, I mean, it's always been around. It's just how people interact with each other. But it is, uh, thanks to Louis Fourteenth, one of the French kings, that the word etiquette, that's where that came from. But modern manners, you know, it, it takes what Louis XIV started and and back then etiquette was actually quite divisive and exclusive it was designed to exclude people um if you weren't in the know it was there to you were not included within the king's court but modern manners today are quite inclusive if if used properly yes of course there are bits that are exclusive like which words you use as we have discussed but actually good manners are timeless and classless and ageless and and priceless to a certain extent and they adapt you know that when the telephone first came in when alexandra graham bell invented it people didn't know how to use it and they would shout down it because they they didn't realize how it worked now when the mobile phone came in we had the same sort of problem with people on trains shouting i'm on the train Mm -hmm. down the phone because they didn't really get that that it had such a sensitive microphone and then amplifier the other end. Now, thankfully, we've we've sort of finessed over time now in the last 10, 20 years that we don't need to shout down it. I'm on the train. So it adapts to, to new forms of, of etiquette. I think in my book I write there is a chapter on Twitterquette, which mm-hmm. is the etiquette on, on social media. No, that's great. Let's let's move into that because I think that's a great segue. Uh, I want to get in. We're going to get into some of the intricate rituals of the extremely upper class in a second. But I think... But I want people to pull away are things that they can do 
you know, everyday kind of stuff. You know, chivalry, people say chivalry is dead, but I think that there are things that we can do as humanity on any level that kind of just make the world a better place. Uh, what are some problems that you see people doing now and th- that you can improve upon? Um, I, I think the the concept of the, the selfie is particularly uh, worrying. And also, as an extension of the selfie, people who take photos of themselves in the mirror using their phone so you get both them and their phone uh-huh. it screams i have no friends to take a photograph of me uh-huh. uh, and actually you know looking beyond that it actually shows a lack of confidence and really what i am teaching with etiquette and my colleagues teach is is confidence confidence without arrogance so people can have the the social and professional skills and ultimately can advance their social and professional careers because we are attracted to people with confidence it's all very well sitting in your room being a, a youtuber for example but you're not actually talking to a, to a specific person i mean it's no different from i suppose radio broadcasting or television really yeah. um but i think that the rise of the youtube generation and the selfie generation comes from a lack of confidence and people that that actually if you put them in front of 100 people at a drinks party would stand in the corner not knowing what to say because maybe they haven't been taught or for whatever reason but actually if they're just talking to a static webcam broadcasting to to millions of people that's a totally different kettle of fish that's a really interesting observation. Uh, there's a, a convention called VidCon, which is where all YouTuber inf- YouTube influencers and this, this whole entire world, they kind of come together. It's a big convention out here in, in Los Angeles. And it's funny because what was so amazing to me um, is how it was like Beatlemania. I mean, these, these YouTubers mm. would come on and these 13, 14, 15-year-old girls would scream their heads out. I've n- never seen it before. It felt, mm. you know, it felt like when Elvis would come into place, or you know, or the Beatles. It's I know those are dated references, but it's as only as crazy as I can think, where people would faint and scream, and I didn't understand it. And then you, so they give me these guys had millions of, of followers and you know views and all this stuff. Then they'd get on stage and they were in front of you know they're in front of a bunch of fourteen year olds who are fawning over them. You, you couldn't say anything wrong, and they were totally awkward. I mean, it was it was as if they'd never been, you know, in front of people before, mm. and that's how they've been making their living. So this is a very interesting point that you're making. Yes, and 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 I worry that you know it's, it's fine. I don't have any objection if you want to sit in your bedroom and and you know blog about whatever, but actually, you know, that is only that will only, you know to the success that the Zoellas or the uh, Tyler Oakleys of, of this world have had are you know are few and far between and, and your average person is not going to have that that sort of success and actually they do need the skills in certainly in their professional lives to, if they're having a client facing role to go and talk to people about a subject that they may not be overly comfortable about talking um, but they've got to know how to do it and, and how to hold a conversation. And it's it's the same as families that, that don't eat together. Not only are the, the families not probably upholding standards of good table manners, but they're not practicing the the very useful habit of actually talking and eating, not as in talking and eating at the same time, but but having a meal and holding a conversation over that meal with the other people around the table. And, and you think that's a very important part of this type of upbringing? Completely, because, you know, and you don't have to be born into some Downton Abbey style uh, life to, to have those skills. These skills are 
as I said, classless and ageless and, and will always hopefully touch wood be be needed. And it's not rocket science. That is what irritates me the most about what I do is that sometimes people look at you as if you are speaking Swahili and actually you're not. You're, you're, you're speaking really fairly fundamental, quite basic things. And it was things that I took for granted growing up. And I was shocked that people didn't know these these things. Well, you know, I think part of the reason why this has fascinated me recently is I happen to be in the same mindset that you are, meaning that the things that you're saying to do, while you, some of them are ridiculously complex, the everyday stuff, the all everyday manners, po- politeness, it's very easy to do. It's, you know, it's, I think one of the principles that you mentioned is that it's kind of putting other people first instead of, mm. you know, me, me, me. And I live in Los Angeles. I don't know if you've been here before, but it is a pretty pretty selfish city, and people Mm. are very into themselves. And so a lot of the stuff that I personally run into is really people wanting to do what they want to do when they want to do it with no regard for anyone around them or you as an individual. Now, if you're put in those types of situations, as I am on, I, I would say daily, but it's an hourly basis... What are some good techniques, some, some techniques that will help me uh, kind of deal with those situations and pass on politeness in a way that people will hear it um, and not get into fights every hour? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's basic sort of even fairly biblical stuff. It is treat people as you wish to be treated. So if you are nice to someone, they will be nice to you back. If you smile at someone, they'll probably smile at you back and good manners are selfless not selfish they are they are the opposite of the la californian mentality mm-hmm. and but that's not to say just because you're living in la and i know this doesn't you know i'm not talking about you in particular daniel but mm-hmm. just because you're living in la and everybody else is being a bit ghastly that means that that's an excuse for you to be ghastly the same as when i travel on the underground in london which is uh, the seventh circle of hell generally it doesn't mean to say that i that is some excuse for me to to adopt and adapt to the behavior that others are are showing me you have to sort of raise the standards and not uh, sink to their level and i'm a great believer in the thank you letter for example if someone has invited you for dinner or they have given you a present yes you can send them a whatsapp or a snapchat or even a text to say thanks very much but that is completely the bare minimum that you can do mm-hmm. yes it's better than nothing um but you know a text message that you've sort of written as you're in bed picking your toenails thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow is not the same sort of thing as putting pen to paper and actually spending 2 minutes to to actually emote from the heart and say thank you actually that that was a really lovely dinner and and the poached fruit you serve for pudding was was excellent da 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 that mm. sort of thing and people will appreciate that they'll think better of you and manners yes today in this very fast paced society manners may manners do require effort and people don't want to put an effort we all want to get away with doing the bare minimum and getting the maximum uh, gain from doing the absolute bare minimum and sadly life doesn't work like that why do you think that is why do you think people have kind of evolved to a point where they want to do the bare minimum and get the maximum output because i think the celebrity culture has, has not helped uh, i mean there have always been celebrities mm-hmm. but there are so many celebrities now the car uh, you know the kardashians get a pretty bad press 
and and nine times out of ten rightly so mm-hmm. but you know they have done absolutely nothing but yet are having huge success and have a, a success well i mean i wouldn't want to be their level of successful thank you very much sure. but they have huge notoriety and influence for doing nothing and and in the uk we have programs like made in chelsea and the only way is essex and it's the same sort of thing these people are nobodies they have and that's i don't have an, an issue with that they don't have to be a somebody but they don't have anything to say they don't have anything to contribute that is useful for for moving society on they they barely have a brain cell between them and they act pretty appallingly and they are not good role models for for the impressionable generations that are watching them well now let me ask you a, a tough question here because i think you're exactly right um but i'm going to flip the mirror on on england for example mm. uh, now i have no problem with the royal family however given the nature of the monarchy you're just born into it they don't really do anything. All the work that was done was a long time ago. Uh, you're not ruled by a queen. You know, Parliament does all that. All that stuff. You have a prime minister. Um, couldn't you say exactly all the same things you said about the Kardashians that you could say about the royal family, except with the obvious politeness difference? There is a difference, but mm. they don't produce anything, and yet there's an extreme fascination with everything that they do. Yeah, but the, I, that's an interesting argument and one that is often made. But actually, if, and it, I appreciate this may not go as reported overseas as it does over here. Sometimes it doesn't even get reported here. But the royal family's job, as it were, these days is to tour the country. It is doing sort of charitable opening this, opening that and using their connections and just even their name and their presence to make the general public just by turning up the press will write about them turning up at whatever charity whatever hospice and and it gains incredibly useful publicity for causes that would otherwise go unnoticed and you know if if, let's say the queen came to birmingham for example the areas that she's going in birmingham suddenly get a lick of paint and they get replanted and the the roadworks that have been taking forever suddenly finish just in time and, and the council get on with it and, and hurry up. Now, yes, the council should be doing those anyway, for example, but actually, you know, the, the, wherever the, any member of the royal family, whether they're junior or senior, things start happening and the local area starts getting nicer. And, and yes, OK, on paper, it should be nice anyway. But just by them turning up, it does make the local authorities sort of sit up and think, oh, we better do something about that. Um, and it, again, it's spreading the, the word of, of the good cause. And they are not doing it for their own publicity. Prince Charles and, and the Duchess of Cornwall are not going around because, you know, they... they are going to sell their wedding to a to People magazine or whatever it is, and and get a bit of cash and go on a nice holiday. They are doing it because they they know that they're in a position of uh, influence, and they have been given a, a very rare and very powerful opportunity, and they are going to use it for good. It is the old-fashioned saying "noblesse oblige," which is which is French for the nobility obliges those who have been born into a position of power should use it for good and not for personal gain which is the complete opposite of people like the kardashians that's a a fair point Uh, so basically you're saying that they kind of grease the wheels in in the uk so when they show up everyone's kind of gets their act together and and moves things along basically to impress the royalty well yes to to a certain extent and and as i say it's a shame that the authorities aren't 
and it's not always the case, obviously. Sure. But uh, you know, the, the Princess Royal, uh, Princess Anne, the Queen's only daughter, always says wherever she goes, she can always smell wet paint because it's always been painted the day before. Sure. Um, and and yes, it's a shame that it is just being done the day before, and it isn't. It, you know, it's having to come to to someone of, from the the royal family to to get that railings painted or the the road resurfaced. But you know, it it is that is actually a force for good. Okay, I, I like that. That's a good argument. The Kardashians take note. I think you guys could do a lot of good in your own worlds um, if you took some some steps and some advice from from the royal family. Hmm. Uh, so now let's talk about common decency. We got a little off track. It obviously led us to the royal family. Let's come back to common decency. Uh, I mentioned people think that chivalry is dead. I happen to disagree. Um, but chivalry is basically the idea that men should curb their excessive masculinity in order to protect the good name of women. That is essentially a watered-down version of what chivalry is. Uh, it's a little different in the modern era, but I think that there are things that, that, peop- that men can still do to be gentlemen. Um, what would be some of the top things that you would suggest that men could do to be a little more civil? Yeah, sh- chivalry is not just about how men treat women, as, as you say. It is actually just how men treat other men. And by other men, we mean men and women, the old-fashioned word of... Sure. The, or the old-fashioned version of men. Sure. You should be chivalrous to anybody, regardless of their uh, gender, sexuality, religion, race. Uh, so that that is modern-day chivalry. You open a door for somebody, not because they are a woman. You open a door for them because they are a human being. And similarly, women can be uh, chivalrous or or not be chivalrous. If you know, you occasionally get women who say, "I can open the door for myself. Thank you very much." To which I always turn around and say, "Actually, madam, I was opening the door because you are a human, not because you are a woman. I would still open the door if you were a man behind me. If you were a goat behind me, I would open the door. It is not nice to have a door dropped on you. <laughs> so always being courteous to other people. Uh, Oscar Wilde had a had a nice quote that is, uh, a gentleman is never unknowingly rude, which are words to live by, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would be terribly boring if you were nice to absolutely everybody, but I'm afraid there are some complete and utter plonkers in life who... Uh, a a well-chosen put-down actually goes a long way and is is perfectly acceptable Mm -hmm. in my book. (laughs) Right. Right. No, I've I've read some of your writings. I know that those the Mm -hmm. (laughs) well-timed the well-timed snark is um, very humorous and poignant as well. I mean, it also puts a spotlight on there. Uh, so, So besides opening doors, what else can people do? Well, I mean, first impressions count, really, and actually having some some pride, and it's going back to this effort concept we were discussing a moment ago, uh, having some pride and uh, respect for yourself and as well as respect for other people. So a gentleman, if we're just talking about men, for example, and a lady, is always well-dressed, but you should never look as if you have put too much effort in. Mm-hmm. And using our friends, the Kardashians, for example, it does look most of the time that they have taken two hours just to leave the house, just to get ready. Whereas a gentleman may have taken two hours, of course, but it doesn't look like he has taken two hours to get ready. It is considered, but it is not over the top. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in some ways, um, you know, taking two hours to get ready harkens back to the old days of the upper class where they changed clothes every couple hours mm-hmm. and had a servant yeah. to do it for them, and it took roughly around two hours. So, yes, is, isn't and, that and a it, callback to that? 
it is a callback to that. But of course, we they didn't have the, the labor saving devices that we had today. And of course, back then, the aristocracy didn't really have much to do. And so you could take two hours to do everything and you could have eight courses at dinner. And uh, of course, you had the staff to support you uh, to do that. So, so as time moves forward, we adapt and leave behind some of the traditions from the past, as well as taking traditions forward. And taking two hours to get dressed is a tad extreme, really. I agree with you. Uh, now, with technology, every time a new technology comes out, there has to be some level of etiquette that goes along with it. Obviously, common sense should be the guiding principle. But as we've discussed, common sense isn't very common sometimes. No. Uh, when in something new comes out, like, for example, social media is a perfect example. You mentioned um, cell phones, mobile phones. Who decides what the protocol is? You know, is it the? I know, I know you're a member of the Protocol on Diplomacy International, which sounds very official. Is that the kind of council or a kind of group that would officially decide what you're supposed to do? Uh, yes. Well, it, it's one. It's the Protocol on Diplomacy International is a group of protocol officers who are predominantly working in the military and the diplomatic field. And protocol is, is etiquette on acid, really. It's, mm -hmm. it's a very formal set of rules that, is, uh, that are put in place and agreed upon well in advance in order to manage relationships. Uh, and so any sort of big political summit that takes place, uh, there is an agreed upon convention as anything from the order of the guests arrival to which way around everyone's flag goes, whose flag gets put where. Uh, who speaks first and last. And, and that is where the stakes are much higher because you're dealing with the concept of, well, it's respect, but it's, you know, saving face, really. Uh, so so they, the Protocol on Diplomacy International, which I'm very proud to be part of, don't necessarily decide the rules because the rules have been around for a while, but they are the conference that's being actually held in Dublin this year in the summer. We will get together and talk about Sometimes it will be modernizing certain bits and, and, you know, you've got things like same sex couples now and, and there isn't or there never used to be a protocol for that because, of course, mm -hmm. it was illegal in, in many countries mm -hmm. uh, and, and not really spoken about. So you have to adapt to modern times. Um, and, and you know, we discuss case case studies that we've had and real life examples and and share experiences. And so we can build upon that. But there there is no committee who sits to decide what is what should there be well i'd quite like there to be yes sure. it would be jolly good fun um <laughs> but but really it's the jobs are it's the, it's the job of people like me to arbit arbitrate between what has gone before and what should go on now based on you know using our expertise on on what has happened to, to take a new piece of technology and, and work out where the boundaries are what is acceptable and what isn't well, I think the general rule of politeness would be – well, let me ask you that question. What would be – let's say there are situations that come up which you can't really account for, which there aren't hard and fast rules for. Um, you know, for example, let's say someone's eating barbecue that's really messy and you see it all over their face or someone passes gas at a, you know, at a dinner or something and it's, mm -hmm. it smells distracting. Um, what do you do in situations like that? so as to be polite and not offend the person and yet handle the situation, the offending situation? 
Well, okay. So in the the passing of gas, uh, the the etiquette used to be, of course. I mean, well, we should just say no one should actually comment that you have passed gas or that so somebody has passed gas. Ignoring so it's very it bad. completely. Ignoring it completely is often the best etiquette. But if someone does say, "Oh gosh, what a funny smell," right. then someone else might say, whether it's the miscreant or someone else. I think it was the dog, <laughs> even if there is not a dog. Wait, so it's polite uh, to blame a completely innocent animal. Well, yes, even especially if there isn't there isn't one. That's where it's it's perfect because <laughs> sure. it's what you're sort of saying is mm. it was it was what it was. Let's not talk about it <laughs> right. um, because you know, and, and similarly, there. people that children and teenagers who break wind and then laugh about it, mm. you know, that's pretty tragic, really. There's nothing funny about flatus. Uh, you don't need to laugh about it. I love the word flatus as well because it's so <laughs> so close to flotus. You're setting me up. You know I'm going to laugh hysterically at that. That's not really fair. I see what you're doing. You've manipulated my the, the 12-year-old in me, uh, and I respect it. So go on. Uh, and in terms of uh, sauce around the face or spinach and the teeth, uh, you know, the, the etiquette is, is pretty simple. You just sort of, if you know that person, whether it's well or not, if you had something stuck in your teeth, Daniel, and we were sitting opposite each other at a, a lunch or a dinner, I would sort of look at you and maybe touch the corner of my lip to say you've got something on the corner of your lip, and that would sure. give you the signal. Right. Uh, I wouldn't sort of say, uh, Daniel, you've got some barbecue sauce around your mouth, right. because that would, of course, highlight it for everyone else. Sure. Uh, do you think, I know this probably isn't your expertise, but do you think that there is a rapper named DJ Flacious out there? And if not, should there be? Well, yes, maybe uh, we can have, I can moonlight and that can be my, <laughs> uh, my alternative career. I bet, you know what, I bet, because you, you have kind of a, you know, a very stiff, proper front face. I bet when uh, the cameras are off, I could see you in a nightclub uh, spinning records or doing something like that. I could see that. I have only ever been to a nightclub twice in my life, and uh -huh. it was the same nightclub I went on two occasions. And on both occasions, I wanted the ground to swallow me up. <laughs> was that bad, huh? All right, maybe it's terrible. All right, maybe I I I'm not a big drinker. Uh, yeah. At the time, actually, I didn't. I didn't drink at all. Mm. Um, but and I believe there are teetotal people that go to nightclubs. But it was, it was incredibly loud. And I always and, and that's another sort of shame because nightclubs of, of our parents' generation were didn't play quite so loud music. But of course, because people lack the confidence these days to hold a conversation. Uh, they the music has, has somehow increased to, to mask this. And, of course, people are so blind drunk that mm. uh, they can't anyway hold a conversation. Sure. So if you don't drink or you just value good conversation, nightclubs really are not a place to go. They are just dens of iniquity for the, the drunk, doped, and disorderly. <laughs> the drunk, doped, and disorderly. Do you mind if I use that? Is that all right? You please do. Okay, I'm going to. Uh, I really like that. So I happen to be a teetotaler. I'm really glad you used that word because when I use it, no one knows what I'm talking about. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad that I found a kindred spirit in you. Yes, alcohol is so boring. And I find it very dull, uh, as does my partner, when we turn up at things and they assume that we're drinking. Or if we say we don't want to drink, they go, really? Are you sure? Come on, you not, you not have one. Uh -huh. You not want one. And and when people go, oh, have a drink for personality, they are the worst. Yep. And you think, if I need a drink for personality, there is something clinically wrong with me. I agree with you completely. But it's a confidence thing. It's a confidence thing. Mm -hmm. Again, you should be confident, confident enough to go to a dinner party 
or whatever it is with with sparkling conversation where you are not on you know very what is basically legal drugs right no that's true uh, and here in California we got other legal drugs as well um, that people can get all hopped up on now let's talk about I know I you know I posted a picture about researching Downton Abbey for this it was kind of a joke however it is a very modern touchstone for people who enjoy etiquette and manners and nowhere else at least in popular media I, I, that I'm aware of do etiquette and manners play such a pivotal plot role than in Downton Abbey? Now, I know it's a little out of touch. I know it takes place in the 1920s. However, some of the protocols are still in place, uh, as you outline in your book. So you mind if we talk about a couple things in there? Please. So you make it a point to say, well, let's start. So they do this in, the, in your, I'm going to try to find some similarities between your book and Downton Abbey. I'll be, okay. I've, I'm four episodes in. I got to tell you, William, uh, just the two of us here love that show way more than I thought I would. Uh, very interesting. It's, <laughs> it's a very good series. Whatever you think, certainly the first couple of series in particular, whatever you think about that way of life uh-huh. or etiquette in general, it's a beautifully lavish mm-hmm. uh, program, as is The Crown, actually, which is like the new Downton. And uh, they've, they've done it very, very well. And also it's, it's, it's a great story. Um, based on based on reality, actually, you know, there there are people that. in history that that it is based on, and and the the author's own uh, experiences. So it's it's very well done. It's hard. I, I challenge anyone to watch the first couple of series and not to like it. I was I was brought in. I, I was it suckered me in early on, and I was amazed at how quickly uh, I was just pulled into the storylines. Mm-hmm. Although there are some things, I'm not going to do spoiler alert, it's not a Downton Abbey podcast, but I, I was a little surprised at some of the twists and turns that they took and why they didn't go another way with it, but you know, we'll save that conversation for another time. But in that, and in your book, you say that when you, and this is also a blast on America, we're going to come full circle on this point, you say that the proper way to greet someone for the first time is to say, how do you do, and not pleased to meet you like we do in the uncivilized states. What is the reason for that? Because if you have never met them before, how do you know if you are pleased to meet them? They could be the world's worst person. And so to be insincere within the first few seconds of meeting them is not a good way to start. I will, of course, say it was so nice to meet you at the end of an exchange, if indeed it was so nice to meet you. I can be sincere. I've spent however long talking to you. Mm-hmm. But within the first couple of seconds, why would you want to lie? I think, as I say in the book, it, it's it's you know the Americans who are all having lovely days yeah, or just have a nice day nonsense, which I, I appreciate is a little bit hackneyed now. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it is true. You go into any shop and, and they want to be your best friend. Yeah, but isn't that part of being polite? I mean, don't you want, isn't part of being polite insincere? I mean, if you, you know, you just mentioned this with passing gas. If it smells and someone, you know, whoever smelt it dealt it, that's the rule here in the States. But you say that's not proper, and I agree with you. However, it is a little insincere. Yeah, but I can, I can go into a shop and the shop assistant can go, good morning, with a nice smile. And mm-hmm. that's great. That's lovely. I know they're there for me. They can, if I have a question, I can go and ask them. They're friendly. They're approachable. They do not need to inquire about my health because they are not my friend. They can be friendly, but they are not my friend. Sure. So, hey, how are you? How are you doing today? All that sort of nonsense. Uh-huh. I don't need, thank you very much. Why do you care about my day? You don't. You're saying it because you think it's the nice thing to say, but actually it's it's jolly irritating. Mm-hmm. 
I did like, I do really like when other people do American accents, even if they are <laughs> extremely offensive and stereotypical. So <laughs> I like what you did there. Uh, well, you Americans like doing uh, British accents terribly, so I thought <laughs> I'd do an American accent terribly. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, quid pro quo. Okay, so let's once you've once you've greeted someone properly, and if this is mostly professional, but I guess in some in a lot of social settings as well, there's the handshake. Tell me about the handshake because I think this is a very important thing that people miss and do terribly in today's culture. Yes, remember we judge people within the first seven seconds of meeting them. We look at how they greet us, which includes the handshake, what they're wearing, how they walk, uh, and, and things like that. And the handshake is key. If I get some sort of flaccid handshake, then I'm going to think you're probably a pathetic person. If I get a handshake that is too aggressive, what are you compensating for? Uh, and, and it is too much. So the handshake needs to be firm, but not too firm. And, you know, we, we probably have you were probably told how to shake hand age three, four, but nobody probably has said anything since then. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people I find in, in you know, fairly high powered corporate positions often have terrible handshakes. And so it's it's my great job to when asked to critique their handshake and tell them what they can do to improve it. So what is the anatomy of the perfect handshake beginning to end? So using your right hand i think most people know that but in but that said in, in things like the scouts and the brownies which are sort of uh, girl guides organizations and, and boy scout mm. uh, things sometimes there is a left-handed handshake uh, but traditionally it is the right hand we look at the person in the eye eye contact is key again shows confidence and trust the palm of the hand faces inwards not downwards if you go to shake someone's hand with your palm facing downwards it's very dominating. I'm going to dominate you. I'm going to be on top of you. I'm controlling you. And that is not right. And uh, two firm shakes generally, depending on where you are. In China, where I teach quite a lot, it goes on for uh, a fair bit, the handshake. In the Middle East, it's uh, lengthier, but it's a bit l more limp. In Brazil, the handshake is more effusive. It goes up and down a lot more. But in Britain, Europe, and America, it's generally it's two shakes. And, of course, the smile is key. What about the two-shake hug bro handshake? Are you a fan of that? Not really, mm -hmm. no. People have tried that with me, but they only try it once. <laughs> There's no way. I would try that with you, and depending on your reaction, that would be my greeting to you every single time. I think you would be hilarious in that situation. Well, yes. Well, I, if we ever meet, I look forward to that. Um, I'll clear my diary. Thank you. Please but do. I, um, you know, the, the the Brits traditionally weren't very tactile, and so even the concept of social kissing was was not done. An emotion of, was reserved only for dogs and horses traditionally. Um, so we didn't really sort of go around kissing people. That was far too European. Mm -hmm. Interesting to see what will happen after. Uh, Brexit has been completed yes. uh, as to whether we go back to being British and, and only kissing family members, not just friends. Um, and if, well, in L.A., of course, social kissing is a concept and, and New York to a certain extent. But in America, you like hugging people, mm -hmm. um, whereas traditionally in Britain, we, we don't really do that. But actually, a lot of my friends, certainly the younger generation, we do hug each other now. And uh, it's fine. But I don't want to hug a stranger or someone with whom I don't actually have any affection mm, that's fair the next big thing here is small talk i think it's difficult for some people as you mentioned with the younger generation 
uh, what is a good way to begin small talk? What, what's appropriate small talk? Uh, you use it as a guiding principle to see if someone has anything interesting to talk about, if they're going to be a boring conversationalist or, you know, or someone who you're fascinated with or somewhere in between. How do you start that, that conversation? Yes, this is small talk. Small talk is very useful. Uh, we are not pretending it is the most interesting type of uh, conversation going. It is often quite banal, but you are easing into big talk. And so traditionally, of course, in Britain, the weather is the talked about topic for small talk because everybody, whether you're four years old, 40 years old, 400 years old, whether you're in a wheelchair, whether you're blind, whether you're deaf, whether you're male or female, uh, you can all talk about the weather. It's a good neutral topic. And the weather is so changeable in Britain. We can have four seasons all in one day. In California, I would not come to your party and start asking other guests about the weather because the weather is pretty consistent with you. And so it would be a dull topic. But the weather is great over here. Maybe if I came to your house, I would talk about, and how do you know, Daniel, to other guests? Uh, or have you come from far? How did you get here? Uh, presumably by car because nobody walks in America in particular in California so I uh, wouldn't ask I wouldn't expect them to say they walked there here's here's another tricky situation I find myself in sometimes and maybe because I'm too polite but if you're in a conversation with someone that you don't want to be in a conversation with anymore how do you and I don't want just one way I want three different ways to get out of that conversation in case one of them doesn't work Okay, so uh, if it's just, I mean, if it's you and a, a, a group, it's fine. You can just extract yourself sure. perfectly fine. Cause, right. But you don't technically leave someone standing on their own, in particular in social situations, a woman. Mm. Um, so uh, you could, whether they're boring or they're, or you generally have to go, you would say something like, Stephanie, it's been so lovely getting to, to know you. I have just seen someone over there. I must go and catch before they leave. I think they're about to leave. Have you met Daniel? Mm -hmm. And Stephanie may say no, and I would go over to or take Stephanie over to Daniel and say, Stephanie, may I introduce Daniel, give a bit of information uh, that's useful for them. You know, Daniel's just flown in from Guatemala, mm -hmm. and I believe uh, you have uh, your parents are from Guatemala. And you'd go, oh, yes, and talk, and then I would just leave, having excused myself. If that didn't work, if there was no handy, if you weren't handily standing around, Daniel, then I might say to them, uh, Stephanie, look, it's been so lovely getting to talk to you. I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I appreciate I have been talking to you for for a while, and I know there are other people here that you'll want to talk to. Hopefully, we'll we'll see each other in a few weeks at the whatever conference. Uh, but in the meantime, keep in touch. Nice big smile, handshake, or a social kiss or hug, whatever's appropriate, and then go. Those are th that's two. The group one didn't count. Is there another way you can get out of this, just in case those two things? You got another trick up your sleeve. Uh, what do you use? Because I, I, I imagine you got a lot I use, of tricks. I use those two. Oh. I use those two. All right. Um, sometimes people say, or, or would you, again, if there is no, if you're not confident enough to do that second one, then you could say, shall we go and get another drink? Or shall we go to the buffet? Mm -hmm. uh, because maybe in the section of the room you are standing, there is no one standing around to handily pair Stephanie off with. And so at least if you traipse together mm -hmm. across to the other side of the room, you can have another go at trying to find someone else. <laughs> now, is this a good way to get rid of someone, get rid of that's harsh? Is this a good way to, to leave a conversation? If you look out the window and you see something in the sky and you say, hey, check out that amazing cloud formation, and then just 
quietly back away. Is that appropriate or is that inappropriate? That is inappropriate. How inappropriate? One to ten. Nine. Okay. So don't do it. All right. Don't do it. Okay. Uh, Now, as we come to a close here, you are obviously a very well put together person. You understand the intricacies of social interaction. You're impeccably dressed. And I think it is very important for someone in your situation to have all of those things to give the impression of authority that, so that you can pass on this information to other people. You would agree to that, correct? I would agree. So I would like to say that I found it very surprising that on your very personal Instagram page for National mm. Siblings Day, you posted a picture <laughs> that I have to tell you just absolutely devastates that entire impression of you. Oh, I believe it? this picture was taken in San Diego, which that's in America already. So I already know that this is this is terrible. But you and your brother have matching fanny packs. What do you have to say for yourself, sir? Well, uh, I was a child. I was under the influence of my parents. I was not a. I was not an independent youth, and uh-huh. uh, we were. We decided we would dress to fit in. Uh-huh. So that's generally what the residents of San Diego in the nineties were wearing. Uh, that is an excellent way out of that. Uh, however, it's not an excuse. These are terrible mm-hmm. fanny packs. I don't remember them being popular. I lived through the nineties, but I'm going to let you get away with that one. And let you get out of this. Well, safely. they were in San Diego. I That's... can assure you, every other person was wearing one. I believe so. So, William Hansen, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And this, you know, for everyone listening, this doesn't have to be it. They can find your book. Uh, you teach lessons on this over Skype as well as in person. You've got a great website. So, tell us how we can get in touch with you. So my website, where you can buy signed copies if you wish me to uh, reduce the value of your book and scribble in it, uh, is williamhanson.co.uk. And how you spell Hanson is, uh, as in the American boy band, as in umbop, it's the same spelling, H-A-N-S-O-N. And uh, my Twitter, at William Hanson, my Instagram, if you're... Uh, if you want to see more embarrassing photographs of me in bum bags, as we call them, or fanny packs, uh, is all linked through on my website. I've never heard them called bum bags. Uh, I, I, you know, I got to tell you, I'm surprised that I would think you'd wanted to separate yourself from the pop group Hanson, but instead you've just leaned into that one and embraced it. People oh yes, I, I'm no relation, of course. I'm uh, I'm not the fourth member. <laughs> the long lost uh, one and sadly I get no royalties from Umbop but that's probably not a bad thing because I haven't heard it for years so um, no I it's very useful because people often spell my name Henson mm-hmm. Handsome with an M so mm-hmm. actually by saying if, if I realise that they are of a generation that they will know what, who Hanson were mm-hmm. I would say as in Umbop and it gets a laugh but also it helps them spell it correctly sure that's two birds with one stone so William Hanson On that note, I want to thank you so much for all these very valuable tips uh, and ways that I can improve myself and my social standing. You are truly an expert and uh, an absolute jewel of the UK. That is very kind of you to say, and God bless America. Well, God save the Queen. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. 
A. Parrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E. A. Parrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode or follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which will tell you all about upcoming guests, new projects, and interesting trivia you may not have known before. And if you don't want to miss a single episode, you, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and we are now on Google Play. You can check out everything that I do that's Fascinating Nouns related or not on DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you for listening. And of transmission.